Hi, I'm Skip Nipper. Welcome to my podcast where I tell you about Nashville's great baseball history and traditions. Shot to write a one-hop liner. Certainly about its past, especially about Tom Wilson Park, Herschel Greer Stadium, Sulphur Dale, but also a little bit about its present and future, too. Yes, he can. A mix the waist-high catch. And I introduce you to players, coaches, and other fans and their love for everything baseball. A high fly ball down the right field corner going way back. Hits a lead-off home run. Baseball is a wonderful subject, and there's always conversation at reunions and at lunches, in my experience, and old-timers' banquets. Inquiries abound about Nashville's city and tri-state leagues as we remember members of our families who played in the old long-gone leagues. Today, it's all about travel ball, and this seems like there are not as many places for older fellows to play. I know there are 50 and older leagues and 30 and over, and friends Bart Leathers and others were members of that. Bart Leathers actually was a high school teammate, played well up until the passing of his life a few years ago, had just played and coached, and is a member of the Roy Hobbs Baseball Hall of Fame, which gives tribute to those in those older leagues. I wish I could have played like Bart. He was a left-hander like me, but he could catch too. Even as he grew older in age, I was always envious of him and how he continued to stay in shape and play. And most of the questions that I receive are folks wanting to know if I can share box scores or newspaper clippings or memorabilia or something I have access to so they can relive some of the memories they have about the old days. And you just heard me talk about Barton. There's so many others, and that's why I love baseball. I think there's always a story, a baseball story, that connects us to our families, and it's really our heritage. You know, social media sources are an excellent way to view those memories and keep them alive, but, you know, we just don't have time to see those all the time. And the reason I'm asked is just in case I have saved something or have a recollection of an event or player. Now, remember, I'm only as good at researching as newspapers or books or photographs will allow, but I relish the questions. I have the time and am happy to oblige as I am able and hope I can run across something that gives a connection from one generation to another. I've been asked a lot. I've also failed some of those who have asked because I just didn't have enough information to Now, in the past, I've recorded a few episodes of Nashville's vibrant baseball leagues, including the Tri-State League and the City League, specifically for the 1963 season for both, and the 1961 City League All-Star Games, and I have to rely on people's memories and also the newspapers to be able to give you that information. And I hope to dig into more detail about them as they are interesting to me, too. A friend, Bill Brunson, asked me once to dig out a little bit of information about the 1954 City League, I think it was, and about the leagues that his dad played in. And I'll get to that, Bill. Just bear with me. There's a lot to dig into. But one that I have left out, and not on purpose, but was it's just as impressive and important, and that's the Capital City League. If you don't know anything about it, it rose alongside white local leagues, but in the black community of Nashville, centered by Hadley Park and its ball field. It opened on July the 4th, 1912, was a 30-acre park northwest of downtown Nashville. And I think Shelby Park and Hadley Park were dedicated on the same day by the city, by the Parks and Recreation Department, although Shelby Park was actually opened in 1892, but it failed. 
and it wasn't there for a long time before the city actually bought the property. But let's get back to Hadley Park. That's the important part now. It was one of the earliest parks anywhere in the United States to be set aside for the exclusive use of colored people. The park was named by Eugene Lewis, who was then the director of the National Parks and Rec Department. But the person for whom it was named is still in question. Was it repentant slave owner John L. Hadley or Dr. W.A. Hadley, a prominent African-American physician with whom Lewis worked on the planning of the Tennessee Centennial Exposition of 1897? He worked with him. Now, archivist and Nashville historian Debbie Oster-Cox has more about Hadley Park and so much more on her website, and be sure to check it out. It's nashvillehistory.blogspot.com. Debbie's a wonderful archivist and a true historian and has helped me on many occasions, but she just digs and digs and digs and doesn't just sit on it. She actually writes about it on nashvillehistory.blogspot.com. It's there that she tells us that the parkland of Hadley Park occupies the site of the former Hadley's plantation and the main house from whose porch Frederick Douglass purportedly delivered an address in 1873 stood within the park until 1948. In the 1930s, stone columns bearing the names of African-American soldiers from Davidson County, fallen in World War I, were erected at the park's main entrance on 28th Street. Now, a swimming pool and a band shell were added, and in 1949, a new community building was dedicated. If you want to know more about this location, a 28th Street situated between Fisk University and Tennessee State University, the wonderful African-American institutions, the L-shaped park is shaded by large canopy trees, including hickory, ash, and elm, which dot the gently rolling terrain. Located within the southern portion of the grounds were picnic shelters, and in the beginning, two baseball diamonds, a playground, open grassy fields, all encircled by a paved walking trail that meandered just within the perimeter of the streets. The northern section of the park contained the band shell and is home to the Hadley Park Community Center, fronted by a U-shaped parking area. And farther north is the Hadley Park Tennis Center, opened in 2018. Now, that's an important aspect of Hadley Park, because when they built the tennis courts, they tore up the baseball field. I have heard folks like Arnett Bodenheimer, Butch McCord, and Dr. Harriet Kimbrough Hamilton talk about the importance of Hadley Park. It's where Jim Sapp and Sidney Bunch Jr. learned to play. And though the ball field was ripped up and replaced by those tennis courts, which has happened all around Nashville because I suppose tennis courts are easier to maintain, don't have to be dragged, foul lines lined off before games, nor are the grass cut on a regular basis, the park board... Well, they just can't take the memories away. And there are lots of them about Shelby, but especially about Hadley Park. And they can only take something good and worthwhile away from present and future generations and not about the past that we love to, to remember. So all this leads me to tell you more about the Capital City League, resurrected in 1956. Now, that's an important date, but it has an existence in the early part of the 20th century. We're lucky to have the Nashville Globe, a black-owned and operated publication launched in 1906, primarily by Richard Henry Boyd, a former slave from Texas. And he reported on the Capital City League in the early years. The Globe was published on Fridays, but once it was sold, publication was lost, and so was information about the Baseball League. 
What I can tell you is Hadley Park near Tennessee State and Fisk University was the primary recreational home for Nashville's black community, as I said earlier. But in 1908, a Capital City League was formed. And it's hard to tell because the Nashville Globe went out of business exactly what was going on between then and up until the 1950s. But in 1956, once bids were taken to install lights on the park's baseball diamond, the Capital City League was soon to return. It was announced in the newspaper that 16 teams would be members of the Resurrected League. And on April the 30th, the first game between the West Nashville Blackhawks and the Old Hickory Barons kicked off the season. The newspapers appeared to have dropped the ball, which was often the case, on reporting the league's existence, choosing to highlight, of all things, tennis at Hadley Park instead. However, a game between the Capital City All-Stars was scheduled to play the visiting Detroit Stars of the Negro American League at Sulphurdale on September the 2nd, and the Capital City All-Stars lost the game to Detroit in 11 innings, 8-7, to seven. and Frank Woods of Old Hickory pitched the last two innings for Nashville, allowing only one hit. The newspaper reports it was a home run by Tuffy Jones. Now, there's a lot more to tell about Capital City League, and I'll go into that a little bit later, but I do want to tell you about the end of the 1956 season. I think this is important, too. One of the teams had taken on the name of one of Nashville's original Negro League teams, the Nashville Elite Giants, and on September the 15th, 1956, as league champions, they opened a best two of three series against the Memphis Grays at Hadley Park. Presumably, they had won their championship of their league in Memphis. Now, the first game was scheduled for 8 p.m., with the next game to be played on Sunday at 2.30 p.m. And should a third game be necessary, says the paper, it would be played in Memphis the next week. Well, the local club, the Elite Giants, won both games in Nashville. And while possibly misspelling the names of two of the game's stars, Doc Dennis, it was spelled E-N-N-I-S, drove in the winning run in the eighth inning of Game 1 to give the Elites a 4-3 win, and lefty Gene Derrick gave up eight hits to Memphis. Doc Dennis and lefty Derrick are popular names from the 1950s, even as early as the late 1940s, that they played ball for various teams in the Negro Leagues. And there appears to be no score reported for Game 2, but Nashville had to have beaten Memphis because they took a 2-0 lead in the series to Memphis with three games scheduled there at Martin Stadium in the Bluff City the next weekend. Game three was to be played on Saturday, September the 22nd at 3 p.m. And since a doubleheader was scheduled for the next day, beginning at 2 p.m., it seems the series had been changed to a best of five series. A lot of times they change those due to the response from the fans as to whether the extended games would add revenue to the teams. Well, the Grays won the first game in Memphis, 8-5, to five, led by third baseman John Crawford, who was 3-for-3, three three, while Charles Chapman gave up 13 hits but was the winning pitcher. And Thomas Wilson allowed 11 hits but was a loser. And I can't find any connection to this Thomas Wilson to the Tom Wilson who started the Nashville Elite Giants in 1920. Now, Nashville won in Game 4, 3-2, giving the Negro State semi-pro baseball title to the Elite Giants. Frank Russell, now Frank Russell is listed on the roster of the Nashville Stars in the early 1950s. He had three hits for the winning team, and Bill Matthews allowed five hits to win the game for the visiting club. 
and a second game on the day was held, but was called in the fifth inning due to darkness, with the Grays leading 3-2. to two. Well, that's the story of Hadley Park. As I know more, I'll pass that on. And about the 1956 Capital City League and their champions, the Nashville Elite Giants. And there's more from 1957 on into the 70s. And I'll try to summarize that a little bit. I may not be able to summarize that. I'll give you all the information that I possibly can. And I look forward to learning more about the Capital City League, as I am sure you are. <laughs>